John, I'm getting a little bit tired of hearing the two of us jabber on and on about healthcare. Do you think there's someone more knowledgeable we could bring to the show? Well, I could. How about Dr. Toby Cosgrove, cardiac surgeon, leader of the Cleveland Clinic, now a leader in digital health, working with Google and other companies? How's that? Oh, yeah, sure, John. I bet you could get him. Welcome to Care Talk, your weekly home for incisive debate about healthcare business and policy. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the CEO of CareCentrics. Hey, John, I'm a little bit tired of hearing your ignorant opinions week after week. Do you think you have any uh, any knowledgeable friends you could bring on as a substitute? How about the famed Toby Cosgrove? I think he's still a friend. We'll see whether it lasts this conversation. I, I don't think he's going to join us, but we have somebody here who, who looks and sounds a lot like him. So why don't you go ahead and make the introduction, John? Well, welcome, Toby. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me, John. Uh, Toby is the uh, reigning former CEO and president of the Cleveland Clinic. And really, the Cleveland Clinic was a phenomenal hospital before he became the CEO, but has really distinguished itself in terms of innovation and putting patients first. Uh, he is a cardiac surgeon. Uh, he spent some time in the military. And he is actually one of these many responsibilities is, is helping us out with the CareCentrics Advisory Board. Uh, tell me, maybe we'll start with leadership. I mean, you've really taken over and taken the clinic to its uh, to an extraordinary. I think it's like number one or number two in the nation regularly as 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 best in class. Uh, how, how did you get it there? Like, what what mattered? Well, I think the probably the most important thing that I did was to think about why we we're all in healthcare. And I, uh, before I became CEO, I had an opportunity to think about and ask myself these. Uh, questions about why do we have a hospital? Why do we have a job? Job? Why do we have clinics, uh, etc.? And I came to the conclusion that there was only one reason for that, and that's for patients. Uh, and that really put patients first, and that became our mantra and our north star, our guiding light. Um, and when we came to Fork and Road, we always has to ask ourselves, what's the right thing to do for patients? And if we realize that it's not about us, it's about them uh, and how we best take care of them, that puts a whole new light on healthcare, whether we're researching, whether we're educating, whether we're doing clinical work. And that is, uh, I think, uh, something that is going to make uh, organizations more responsive uh, to uh, the people that we're treating and also more responsible, responsive responsible citizens. One of the things that we learned, you know, that I learned from watching your example at the clinic, and we've really instituted as part of what CareCentrics does, is there's almost a, 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 a hierarchical relationship between healthcare, not just in hospitals, but in general, and the patient. And the patient and the family kind of feels like the servant to this medical industrial complex. And what we've tried to do is really put the patient and the family in a position of power so they can make choices. Their opinions matter. How they feel matters. How do you institutionalize that across the, you know, the tens of thousands of people at a hospital? Well, I think that's one of the things that the leaders have to do. Uh, and one of the things that they have to do is uh, demonstrate uh, how they feel and lead by example. They also have to constantly communicate. The communication thing is absolutely essential. And it, you have to, I got so tired of it myself saying the same thing over and over and over again to different groups 
um, that I had to figure out new ways, new important ways to send it uh, and say it. And so that was um, one of the key factors in uh, reaching everybody and getting them all on the same page. What was the seminal moment when you knew you had that challenge and when did you know you'd actually conquered it? Well, I had an interesting thing happen. Uh, we had a group of people in from IBM who were uh, working and they went off to lunch one day and uh, they came back and said, 13. And we said, what? 13? What's this about? We said, we had 13 people ask us if uh, they could help us and because we looked lost. And I thought that was an example of people uh, really uh, responding to their the message of uh, helping people as they came into the organization. Um, it, but it took probably five years to get an organization that way. Cultural change is tough. And if you, and if you look across healthcare, David, do you see much of that? Well, I don't see uh, I don't see Cleveland and Boston. I know we hear about patient centric a lot, and then a, ton, a lot of times I find the you know offices around here are still organized for the benefit of the uh, the providers, if not for the for the health plans themselves. So it's uh, a lot of talk, and haven't seen you know that much of it. Individual physicians certainly, when you're seeing them, there's a lot of uh, empathy and putting the patient uh, patient first. But I, I would say that Toby, we've got a ways to go, and if you consider not retiring, that would probably be helpful. I'm, I'm I'm sorry. I'm I'm retired now, and but I continue to champion the cause. So does the does do do the new digital alternatives? I mean, you're involved in a bunch of new technology companies, whether it's Google or some telehealth work. Does the the, the new in, digital innovations give us the opportunity to kind of reset the relationship between patients and the healthcare system, Tobes? I think this is an enormous opportunity. If you stop and think about it, when you want a pizza, uh, you don't expect to go get pick your pizza up. You expect it to be delivered. And why shouldn't that not be the same way for healthcare? Uh, take the healthcare to, out to the individuals with telehealth, um, begin and stop and think about all the different ways that you can reach people that will be convenient for them and, and also how often you can check on them. Think about, for example, diabetes. Why do you have to go to a medical uh, location to get your blood sugar checked uh, or hypertension? Uh, why do you have to go get your blood pressure checked? You could have it checked on a, you know, a daily basis if you needed to be uh, and simply report those activities back uh, to a central location and get the appropriate advice. Uh, none of which will require going to an institution. So the convenience factor, the quality uh, factor, uh, and the ability to uh, bring care and drugs, uh, et cetera, to the individuals where they live, I think is going to be a major step forward uh, in helping uh, people get live better and longer more conveniently. Didn't you try that at the clinic? And what was the impact? I mean, did, you, did it increase costs? Well, we, you know, we tried it at the, at the Cleveland Clinic uh, initially in, uh, before COVID. Uh, and, you know, I had an experience with my daughter uh, having a, a rash. And uh, I took a picture of it and sent it into the dermatologist. They announced that it was poison ivy. And I thought of all the effort that that, uh, that eliminated. And I went to the dermatologist and said, let's do this. And, uh, and then I rolled it out across the entire institution. And it was really hard to get pickup amongst the providers. Um, they had all sorts of excuses not to do it. And it was new to um, the, the patients. So it was, but when COVID came along, all of a sudden 
94% of the diabetes was treated uh, remotely. Um, I went from one or 2% with virtual care up to 60% uh, virtual care. This just shows you the potential for this. And I, uh, and I think it's going to be something that is going to be um, a regular part of our armamentarium going forward. Toby, I'll let me follow up on that one. What we saw is that, you know, those of us been working in digital health for, for a couple of decades saw probably literally a decade of progress in one week in March in terms of the, the adoption. One of the things that surprised me a little bit, it didn't surprise me to hear that, you know, patients actually like it and it works out pretty well, not for everything, but for where it can be used. I've been a little surprised that a lot of places seems to have uh, kind of backslid. And so there's been a lot more that's returned to in-person visits than I would have thought. And I'm wondering if you're seeing that phenomenon as well and what, what you think about it. Yeah, you know, I think we will see him going back because there's a lot of things that and you can't do heart surgery with uh, virtually. Uh, so there's going to be people that are actually going to come back to be seen. Uh, but I think it's going to be a regular part of uh, how we go. I mean, we went back from uh, 60% to about 25% uh, currently. I think it'll probably slide back a little further, but I don't think it's going to go away. Not for a second. I think it's here to stay. How do we keep I mean, I just think that from a convenience perspective, you know, your pizza example is provocative. What do we need to change to get the medical industrial complex to absorb and accelerate the, these changes? Well, I think we're starting to look at uh, various things uh, that uh, technologies that are going to help it. I mean, certainly uh, the Zooms, the Teledoc, the American Well, um, and many others have uh, given us the technology to, to deal with this uh, really conveniently, and people have gotten used to it. Uh, so, um, and then there's going to be all sorts of additional ways that we can harvest information uh, from all kinds of uh, sources, uh, whether it be uh, Google searches uh, or other ways that you can collect that data. And I'm seeing technology um, coming along that can help. Uh, one of the interesting things that I saw recently is the way that you can uh, make an e get a 12 lead EKG uh, off a little thing that looks about the size of a stick of gum. That um, uh, you, you can imagine what that means in terms of monitoring people at home, monitoring people who are on drugs, which may uh, cause arrhythmias, searching for uh, arrhythmias um, remotely. Um, the, the ramifications of that kind of technology are huge. And I think there, there's lots of other technologies coming along going to do the same sorts of thing. I, th I think that's going to be a huge help, um, Toby, to actually accelerate more care to the home and the kinds of things that you, you, you're working with us on and we're working on to transition more care in the community. But I, uh, but I, I, I do think it's going to require the federal government and the private insurers to actually support it with reimbursement, because I think that at least our experience is patients want it. Uh, it, it. It can enhance the information a doctor gets, but it's often prevented with old payment systems. Yeah, I, I think that's right. But I, I, one of the things that I'm really excited about is Seema Verma at CMS really took a major step ahead in reimbursing for uh, telehealth. Um, and that uh, certainly increased uh, physicians' Uh, our caregivers' uh, willingness to use that enormously. I think the important thing is we need to have that uh, legislatively uh, supported uh, going forward. Uh, and similarly, I think the, what we've seen about 
uh, practicing in various states as far as licensure is concerned. Also, uh, we, we really need to do away with having to have a license in all 50 states in order to practice medicine uh, via telehealth. And so with those changes, um, I think it's we're going to be increasing that direction. You know, it's pretty clear that the pandemic, first of all, is going to be with us for a while, and then it's making a lot of changes in healthcare and in society. Back in the early days when we were first uh, grappling with this, back in, in, way back in April, you and John had uh, uh, an article, an op-ed that you co-wrote about a healthcare ready reserve, and you both have uh, military uh, experience. And you talk about maybe that concept, you and, you and John, and if, if it still seems like a worthwhile thing to do today. Well, first of all, this was John's brainchild, so probably he wants to speak first, and then I'll throw my two cents in. Well, just my, I think our, our our thoughts were that at a time when we absolutely need surge capacity, and we have millions of people unemployed, and the military has the ability, uh, but not the funds, to train someone like a respiratory tech in like twenty to thirty weeks, that it, we would be well served uh, in a world where pandemics. Are, are happening right now and are likely to happen in the future to, to train and keep training a certain reasonably large amount of people who could support in a time of a healthcare crisis, post a tornado or a hurricane, we're going to period of volatile weather, uh, to train people in basic healthcare skills that would also give them dual track employment opportunities as America ages. It's an investment in America. It's an investment in defense uh, of, a, of a healthcare sort. And it also uh, you know, gives people you know, a, a path to multiple paths to employment. And rather than just write general checks in, in income support, why not give them skills? And I think not only give them skills, you're giving the, the uh, dignity of having a job, um, which I think is important to, other than just getting a free handout um, for being unemployed or uh, being needing to have support. I, I think those are um, a, a wonderful thing that you can do for an individual's psyche. Toby, I saw you've got a number of uh, retirement projects. I guess if you put aside running a gigantic organization that you have some free time, even uh, even if you're going to also have some uh, normal retirement. And one thing that, that struck me was something called the ABLE channel. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that. I hadn't heard of it until I, I looked it up. Well, it's interesting that if you stop and look at right now, there uh, people are really learning not just from papers, but they're learning visually. And, and stop and think about we now have a tennis channel. We have a golf channel. Um, we have all sorts of channels. And this is the time that we can begin to uh, spread the uh, learning about healthcare visually. Uh, and it can be an adjunct uh, to teaching people about diabetes or treating their heart disease or their diet or dealing with suicidal uh, uh, thinking. Um, this is this is a big opportunity to move past the written page uh, and the oral uh, to visual, which is where most people uh, get their knowledge. Um, most effectively. So I think that this is a big opportunity to uh, expand uh, the teaching and, uh, if you will, democratization of healthcare knowledge. Or, or just in knowledge in general. It makes a lot of sense. Hey, Toby, I noticed that you also had done some work with Google. Um, is Google Healthcare's friend or foe? Well, I think Google Healthcare is clearly a friend. I mean, they got kind of a bad rap, I think, early on when they brought together, I think, 13 data centers 
uh, and collected that information in the cloud. Uh, and I make the example of the security of your healthcare data. If you stop and think about it, uh, I don't think the Cleveland Clinic has any particular expertise in running a data center. Uh, and I laughingly say that I probably could go in and take a server off the shelf, off the racks uh, there. Um, but if you look at serious data centers um, that are uh, part of the cloud, you get a serious um, uh, security around your data. And it makes nothing but sense for me to begin to store data in the cloud for as far as security, as far as efficiency is concerned, and ultimately in terms of interoperability. Yeah, I, I would think that Google could be the ultimate interoperability engineer. Well, I, I think there's a couple of things you have to think about. And what everybody is worried about right now is uh, security of data. <clears throat> and what I think is would be great if, in fact, you had a third party looking at uh, the security of your data. And that takes away the, the uh, concern about uh, major tech companies using the data in ways they shouldn't. And we also understand that as you collect huge amounts of data, you've got the opportunity to use machine learning to understand about um, healthcare in ways that we never could before. And that is gonna have to be done with permission. And if you couple those two things together uh, with permission and uh, assurance of the security of the data, then I think you got enormous opportunities. So, Toby, we have a habit of, of ending the podcast and usually with a, some sort of negativity, and we sort of cut it off before it spirals out of control. So I'm going to give you a neutral question and see which way you, you take it to, to close things out. So I have uh, teenage and uh, young adults uh, in, my, in my family, and the question I have for you is, you know, would you advise them to consider going into medicine? Absolutely, I would. I think healthcare is uh, one of those opportunities that you get to really contribute to society. Um, in an enormous way. And I think the future of healthcare uh, is so dynamic now that it's uh, in a way that has never been before. The other thing I would say is there is always major opportunities for leadership in healthcare. We don't have enough great leaders in healthcare. And if someone is really aspires to lead a noble cause, healthcare is a great way to do it. Well, that's it for this edition of Care Talk. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the CEO of CareCentrics. Thank you, Toby, for joining us. My pleasure.